and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo Westwick PHN Hub. Series 8, Session 4. It is Thursday, the 17th of February 2022. Welcome back. Uh, this session's titled, What do GPs and practice nurses need to know about PIMS TS? Um, and I'd like to begin with acknowledging the traditional custodians and owners of the lands from which we're all zooming in from today. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Um, we recognise the diversity, resilience and ongoing place that First Nations people hold in our community and um, and we support self-determination for First Nations people and organisations, and we will work together on closing the gap. Well, schools have been back for three weeks now, and despite this increasing mixing and crowding, we seem to be progressing through the downhill slope of this Omicron wave. Although from conversations that, you know, the team were having just before we opened up the room, anyone who has a child in daycare might dispute that right now, as it seems like there's still quite a lot in those cohorts. At the beginning of the series, we had anticipated that Omicron might cause a little bit more mischief. And here at Echo, we've prepared for the worst uh, and expected the best. So preparing for the worst, we thought we'd focus on PIMS TS at this point in time in the case that we were seeing a bit of this or that we might see a bit of this. It still might come. So we're going to focus on PIMS TS or Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Temporally Associated with SARS-CoV-2. Earlier in our Omicron wave, there were a few cases admitted locally. When I say locally, I think we had some in in our Geelong region admitted. And it seemed that maybe it might be best to get our heads around this rare but concerning syndrome. But I also wonder if understanding PIMS-TS might help us understand other inflammatory conditions associated with COVID, such as long COVID or some other unusual symptoms that might be presenting to primary care. I've had COVID. Could this uh, symptom be related to COVID? Um, And to illustrate this point, we've got a GP case this morning in store for you to um, unpack some of those, I guess, uh, undifferentiated things. Could this be related to COVID and how might we proceed with some um, careful and reasonable advice? So finally, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on whether our response to COVID and infection in primary care means that there are paediatric care needs that are being deferred or missed. Are we missing that bacterial infection? Are we putting things down to COVID that might be explained by the differentials. Um, we'll, we'll hold this poll and I'll come to it in a sec. Uh, when will the prevalence of COVID decrease such that we can kind of think about going back to business of, um, you know, re- business as usual models and increase those face-to-face consults so that we can be doing those routine ways or things that we might be, you know, not doing at the moment. Um, be keen to hear what your thoughts are in terms of how your models are. Uh, or even um, it's just mentioning an end of this wave, merely jinxing us. So sorry about that if I do, but let's get underway. Bianca Forrester GP. I'll be facilitating along with Gemma and um, Fee. Thanks to um, Katrina, Zach and Jade for offline work supporting ECHO and welcome to everyone zooming in from our Westwick region or, or observing from um, out of our region. Um, welcome. Thanks for introducing yourself in the chat. Um, yeah, so we polled um, last week and we said, well, what's the most common thing presenting to you at this time? And it does sound like COVID clinical care is the, the hottest um, thing that's really presenting. Um, but it seems like you're fairly confident confident with managing it somewhat or slightly, I'd be keen to hear, you know, what's the gap? Are there things that we can support with in ECHO? Do give us that feedback because we, uh, uh, this is bottom-up teaching. The, 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 basically, the curriculum comes from you guys. So what would improve your confidence? Do let us know. Either mention it in the chat or do send us a message. Gemma will give us give you our email in the chat. It's going to be something like projectecho at westvicphn.com.au, but we'll Gemma will put that in the chat. Let us know what would increase your confidence. And in your experience, is COVID-19 in kids presenting similarly to other childhood infections? 
really most people said, yes, it is. So isn't that interesting? We're kind of, uh, you know, seeing it's fairly similar. Someone said, no, I'd be keen to find out what what that one was. It'd be interesting. Maybe that's a case study. Um, so great to hear from you um, about your experiences. So do keep in touch and let us know how we can um, keep working to um, build your confidence. What have we got on the agenda this morning? Um, so Kate's going to bring us uh, our update on um, rat stats and rules, 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 vaccines, COVID positive care pathways and health pathways update. Uh, we're joined again by Dr. Jane Standish, paediatrician, Bowen Health, MCRI and RCH to bring us um, the discussion around the paediatric inf- uh, inflammatory multi-syndrome, so typically associated with COVID. Um, Linda Govan will give us an update on how the PHNs are working to um, support the work of primary care. And um, we welcome Naomi White, our COVID positive pathway manager here at West Vic PHN, um, to chip into the discussion around COVID positive pathways in our region. So welcome everyone. Over to you, Kate. Good morning, everyone. Um, So I thought we'd just do a bit of an update as to where we are um, and sort of what's happening around uh, Victoria and sort of the world at the moment, really. Um, so we've got Omicron's little brother, um, which is the BA2 variant, and that's increased in Victoria a little bit over the past week. And so that's come up from 0.5 to 6.9% of the cases. And that was done on about a 700 um, case survey across the cases um, that they tested in pathology. It really just has a growth advantage. There's no differences um, so far um, compared to Omicron itself. It doesn't appear to be um, in any way different in terms of its clinical presentation. Vaccines are still effective against it. So apart from being a bit more spready, um, which we may see effects of coming up, um, there's really not a great difference. Um, H3N3 influenza is something that's being seen a lot overseas. Co-infection is something that we're going to see coming up. Um, vaccination for flu and COVID is something we can do. And Atagi has supported that in the guidance now. Um, it was previously supported only for two doses. It's now supported even for that primary dose shed. Um, it's going to be really important when you're thinking about particularly aged care facilities or places where you get that one chance to go in and you want to vaccinate everyone against things at the same time. If your booster doses are up and you've got those flu vaxxers there, get vaccines into arms at the same time if you've got that one chance to get things done. Um, but that's um, when to test for respiratory viruses is something that may come up in the near future as we do start to see more imp- PCR testing because COVID is still sort of what we're seeing primarily. Um, I'm just going to turn my video off because my connection is unstable apparently. Um, But what we may see soon is advice for when there is more influenza in the community um, that we may be advised to test for respiratory viruses. But I think that, again, as we talked about a little bit last week, is when you've got somebody who's testing negative for COVID, um, particularly in sensitive settings, um, that that may be when you want to test for respiratory viruses just to see what else is happening and to make sure that if it's a rat test um, that you're following up with either a PCR test if they're symptomatic um, and then if that PCR test is um, negative but 
they're still symptomatic and in a high-risk setting. So if you've got lots of cases happening in your residential aged care facility and you've got that respiratory virus thing happening, you're still going to follow what you would have normally done in a, in a residential aged care setting, which is gate and figure out what's happening there. Um, croup symptoms in kids with Omicron um, has been reported as a lot more common and that's something to sort of keep an eye out for and manage um, particularly. Uh, and we now see antivirals delivered to residential aged care facilities. I was very excited to see them arrive last Thursday at my residential aged care facility. Um, so that's something we'll be talking about a bit um, next week. What I wanted to flag for you, though, is when you're looking at your patients um, and when you are sort of asked to prescribe, just being really cautious um, that they are large tablets and they are not crushable. So if you have a patient, talk to the aged care facility about it, making sure that the patient is able to swallow. If they're not able to swallow, you need to look at alternative pathways for clinical treatments for them. Um, because they're all time-limited things and you want to get treatments in as soon as possible. So where are we? This is just a little graph looking at the REF or the reproduction efficiency factor. Um, and so the orange line is sort of what was happening. So the grey is the cases um, across Victoria. And as you can see, we're tracking along around about that one now. So cases are coming down sort of just underneath that one maybe now. So we're dropping down slowly. Um, I'll just go on to the next graph. More importantly, and this is what we really want to see more so than that case graph, which is sort of a nice peak and coming down, is the hospitalisation, which is the the ICU, which has really been stable over time. So although we've seen this really big case, we haven't seen severe disease. And that is really sort of very important thing to sort of keep an eye on um, for all of us. So the next one. So I think rat access is improving. Um, I think a friend was telling me that there were rat tests. And yes, when there are rat tests in Target, we know that there's symbol access out there. Um, there's rats in schools, rats in kinders are now happening and PCR times are decreased. But where we're seeing outbreaks are still in schools and childcare settings, but they're not causing mass disruptions, which is really important. Um, disability in prisons are still happening. And so in all of these settings, you can think about them as um, that partially vaccinated or unvaccinated populations, showing that vaccination is really sort of making a difference to the rest of that adult population. Um, there's not as much of a burden in aged care as we've seen previously, which is really, really important to um, make note of because I think that we've all been doing excellent work in terms of to that population. Um, rats and stats, and I think we get so many questions from patients. Patient confidence in rats is a question that I get from every friend that I come across. Why wasn't my rat positive when I definitely had COVID? Why was it only positive on day six? Does that mean that I have to isolate from day six for seven days? All that kind of stuff. Um, so I think being able to really be confident in explaining that is such an important part of our role. Um, so I think that where rats are really, really important is in that population where you've got a high pretest probability. 
So if you've been in contact with COVID and your test is positive, you're going to think of that as a positive. If you've got high symptoms and you're in a high prevalence population, you're going to think of that as positive. If you're in a relatively low prevalence population, so if you're in a closed environment um, that is sort of relatively controlled in terms of entry. So if you're in a residential aged care um, and you've got people being rat tested on entry to get in, if your staff is all having regular surveillance rat testing and you've got a person with symptoms and they're rat tested positive, you may want to confirm that just to make sure you'll treat them as positive until they are confirmed not to be positive because that's sort of very important to get treatments in early and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of longer-term management, you want to make sure that in lower prevalence populations that you are treating the right thing because we do know that the false positive rates are higher and particularly as a caseload drops, this is something to pay attention to. So high prevalence, just work on the assumption that more people have COVID. So there's a high suspicion still if somebody has symptoms and tests negative. Low prevalence, much more useful at ruling things out. So a negative is more likely to be a true negative. Um, what I wanted to flag is the change to guidance last week, again, which is that a false positive rat, if people think that their rat is a false positive, they must have that negative PCR within 48 hours to be considered um, cleared and that it is a true false positive. So if they have it at a delayed stage, their initial rat result will still stand. So you've got to get that PCR test done quickly, otherwise it won't matter for them. And we still wouldn't recommend in a symptomatic person going and having that test done. So I'll just go on to the next one. Uh, vaccines pre-submitted questions. We're probably going to handball all of these over to next week um, a lot or a bit later on because we don't have a lot of information um, coming out about this yet because they're all sort of um, thoughts that are being looked at by ATAGI. Um, so people with immunocompromised, we don't know. We don't know a lot yet whether people will end up with having regular boosters. We don't know if we'll have regular boosters. And I think that even with overseas data, um, I think that now with our boosters at three months, we're almost in a position where we're aligning a lot with um, the international population, whereas previously we were that little bit behind where everyone else was sitting now we're sort of almost aligned with um, where the international population was sitting in terms of data. So it's, it's not so much that everyone else is very far ahead of us now. So I'll just go on to the next one. So new advice from ATAGI this week, just to sort of pay attention to in terms of changes in definition. Three doses is up to date. Six months since your second dose is overdue. Um, AstraZeneca is now uh, provisionally TGA approved as a booster dose. We already had that sort of advice that you could use it in set circumstances. And we'd still sort of consider that those set circumstances is where you should um, 
still be using it. So mRNA are still the preferred booster. Uh, the worker vaccination requirements um, have been changed a little bit in and extended in the pandemic orders. So the essential worker date has moved to the 12th of March. There was previously a date at the 29th of March uh, for people who hadn't been vaccinated um, by September um, and we're still eligible. Um, and that has just been taken off temporarily while we work through at the department, um, some of the logistics around those people who will come up to eligibility. Um, so I think I just encourage people to get their vaccination dates in order, get things in order, um, because there's a lot of evidence out there that two doses at the end of six months has not very much good effect against Omicron and that your likelihood of spreading Omicron in a workplace environment, if you get it even after two doses, is quite good. Um, exemption letters um, and the exemption um, must be on formal exemption sort of pathways through air for any exemptions for booster doses to be considered. Um, and that uh, also involves for post-COVID infections. Just um, if I can jump in for a sec, Kate. So um, send, keep sending, thanks Jess, for your question about fourth doses for healthcare workers. Keep sending all your vaccine questions forward to us where Gemma's going to collect them all. We've got Callum Mags coming in two weeks' time. So next week we've got Rachel um, Cowan and uh, also a new ID physician at Barwon coming to talk to us about the oral antivirals and any other, if you've got any other questions about antivirals, full stop. So if you want to go over Citrovimab again, but really that's about the oral new oral antivirals. Um, and then the following week we've got Cal Mags coming to talk about um, vaccine and a vaccine update. So I'd love all your questions, big or small, case scenarios, um, you know, anything around those two topics, just keep popping them in the chat. Just email them to us. Thanks for everyone who's been doing that already. We're going to collect all of that and um, really guide Cullen to um, respond to our ground up questions. Thanks, Kate. And I think one of the other key questions that um, people are starting to ask um, is around Novavax as booster doses because we've had a lot of the population waiting for Novavax. Um, well, not a lot of the population, but uh, the people who have been waiting for Novavax want to know if that'll be available for boosters yet. And I think similar to our other advice um, that we've had with our other vaccinations, that the booster advice tends to be later um, and prioritised later on once the initial ATAGI advice is out, um, it will come when the timing for booster doses is due. So I think that was all for vaccinations. Um, the COVID positive care pathways, we're going to have um, some information on health pathways uh, in the COVID referral pathways that will be going live sort of at the end of this week. And that will be involved, that will involve a lot more detailed information for anyone who is um, positive. So it's the confirmed COVID-19 referrals and escalation of care. So it will have information about each referral option, phone numbers, all the information that you want to have to hand. We've organised it a bit more efficiently for you. Um, and we've also updated the vaccination page quite a lot this week with um, Novavax, and that is live at the moment. So I'll just go on to the next one. 
Uh, this is something we really wanted to flag quite a lot because as we move away from PCR testing, the GPRCs have another role. Um, and COVID-positive pathway patients who need face-to-face -face care or anyone who is COVID-positive um, who needs who can't be assessed through the usual GP, can go and see um, doctors at the GPRCs. So there's various um, criteria. So some are appointment only, some are walk-ins accepted. They've all got different timings available. Um, and so the information is available on health pathways, um, but it's really for that respiratory assessment. And I think as some of the discussions were that we had last week. It's about making sure, particularly for children, um, that we're not missing some of those other bacterial, secondary bacterial infections, um, that we're not missing dehydration. When you just want a second set of eyes over things, it's to save people having to wait for hours in emergency departments. It's to save that sort of emergency streaming thing for people who don't need to be seen in an emergency setting. It's an excellent sort of option. So we want people to consider where this service would be required and how you can integrate this into your care. So thinking about how you would sort of have this in your triage and phone call setups. So when somebody calls in the morning and says, I'm COVID positive, I need to be seen. How is your triage setup going to help them access this care? Mm. And um, and Naomi, just pop your camera on if you don't mind. I just wanted to uh, introduce Naomi to everyone. So, you know, when we're thinking about this as part of a new care model, really, I guess it's thinking, uh, you know, I'm curious as to how many people, is this going to be just for people who don't have GPs? Uh, you know, are, are there many of you guys who are looking after COVID care that can't do face-to-face. -face. I'm really keen to hear how we're going with our face-to-face -face models because we talked a lot about that last year. Um, and if you are going to use GP respiratory alongside your own assessments, what's really important in those integrated care elements? Are you going to need to know that they um, are seen and do you want correspondence back and how do we close the loop on, on communication or is that not that important? So I guess these are the things I'm keen to hear from you guys. And I just wanted to introduce Naomi. He's been doing all that background work on that slide to find out what the process is. Thank Thanks, Naomi. Thanks. Do, do you want me to answer a couple of those while I'm here? Well, did you want to just give a quick background yeah. to kind of where you're up to with the work and what you want to learn from the GPs if there is feedback? Yeah, so your questions are absolutely fabulous. Um, uh, where are they at with their uh, COVID positive care in their own practices? Because that's the way the world is moving at the moment is to, to out of the hospital systems and into primary care as another, another one of the illnesses that we, we treat. And if Barring a new variant uh, of concern, um, Omicron is, a, is proving to be something that can be treated in primary care outside of a few people. So I'm really interested to see how practices are integrating that and what we can share amongst uh, other people in the Western um, area for what can we share, what can we learn from each other to improve that across the districts. Um, the GPRCs are all happy to see particularly patients without a GP and those with GPs who don't have the facilities to do face-to-face -face assessments themselves. Now, I know there's a lot of GPs out there already seeing patients face-to-face -face and they've organised their clinics to make that possible, but there are also GPs who are in clinics where that's not possible and this is what this service is for. All of the GPRCs um, will feed back to a re referrer either via um, 
letter or phone call and and the GPs can say whether they they're happy for a letter to go back um, or whether they prefer a phone call on the day for the individual depending on the severity of the person um, presenting as well. Um, three of the GPRCs have walk-in available almost every day. Um, I think Sunday is is the lack of um, access day for a few of them. Uh, so it's a pretty amazing resource that we have in the district and all have capacity at the moment, given, given the level of sickness within the, um, the community, they all have capacity for same day access, which is what's really important when you have somebody calling you up who's quite sick. Mm. Okay, thanks, Naomi. So as you're just describing this, I'm thinking, guys, do we want a session? You know, we did quite a few sessions on face-to-face care models with non-COVID infections when it came into winter. Do we want to run a, a service system echo where we do bring a few case presentation, uh, you know, clinical service presentations forward and discuss different scenarios about how people are managing COVID? Would that be a value or interest to you? I'm keen to hear, um, you know, reach, let us know in the chat or, or reach out to Gemma because I would imagine what we would do is schedule that towards the end of, either towards the end of this series or maybe coming into winter in next series. So how are you all going with that? Is it presenting as many head aches as last year or do we feel like we've really got that um, down pat um, thanks so much Naomi and uh, and if anyone wants to reach out to Naomi um, about any feedback if you've used the service and things haven't quite worked um, Naomi let us know in the chat what your how your preferred feedback um, loop yeah great thanks all right thanks welcome Jane Standish um, over to you morning everyone um just another paediatric um, input, a little bit more about the acute presentations um, and whip through, see if there's any questions that come up from it. Um, a little bit about what we're seeing with acute COVID infection at the hospital end, which um, hopefully will reflect what you've been seeing in community as well, and a bit about post-COVID presentations. Um, so... The, there's good data about acute COVID in children. It's really um, very similar to what you will have been expecting and unex um, as expected, you will have like fever and cough are the two most frequent symptoms, but also particularly in children, GI symptoms. So just the next click, if we can, um, are really common. So about 20% of children will present with um, GI symptoms and also very common um, it is rash and um, conjunctivitis. So we're seeing a, a range of presentations that aren't all respiratory in focus. Um, and certainly we've been seeing that reflected in our presentations that have been coming through to hospital. If we click through again, um, that the range of children needing to come into hospital um, with the more recent COVID wave of infections, um, quite a lot of upper respiratory um, tract presentations, including croup, um, many with just GI symptoms that might need some fluid support, young babies who, um, similar to if they had bronchiolitis or another virus, need some feeding support, and some with, um, you know, a range of rashes like urticarial rash or quite vasculitic-looking rash in the acute COVID setting. So just keeping in mind the spectrum that we're seeing in that, and it, um, it's a lot of um, respiratory but not all respiratory symptoms. Um Admission numbers haven't been super high, so absolute numbers have increased compared with what we were seeing towards the end of last year um, and are probably tailing off again um, now a little bit in, in keeping with um, the community numbers, but a really low percentage of what we presume 
presume that the infection numbers are in the community. Um, but when you and when you're on um, telehealth or in outpatients with family, the number of families are impacted currently or last week or someone in the household having infection or it's um, very high. Fewer admissions over over the last um, four to six weeks with severe acute COVID infection than what we were seeing at the peak of the Delta wave last year. And that um, they were small numbers then, but they were mostly um, obese teens were the biggest risk factors for that really severe acute COVID infection. And that's been very uncommon recently. And whether that's the Omicron difference or the vaccination difference or some combination of the two um, is um, what we're assuming. Um, this is part taken from the COVID um, pathways at RCH that Kate had the link to in a previous email um, and not to go into in detail, but just to be aware that there are pathways to active treatment for those at higher risk. Um, so just the next click brings those boxes up, um, which is the similar high risk box to what you'd be familiar with um, from the adult risk. It's the, um, the same conditions. So the, the ones that particularly worth taking note of uh, that um, obesity uh, in children is one of the highest risk factors that we've seen for severe acute disease and those complex chronic, chronic conditions, including um, trisomy 21 and neurodevelopmental conditions. So that was all I was really going to say on acute COVID, but happy to come back and answer questions if they pop up. Um, and wanted to reflect a little bit about post-COVID symptoms, um, post-COVID condition, I think it's also being referred to as well as long COVID, um, and data that's coming out, um, which is both international and local. Um, so still more information out there on, on these symptoms in adults compared with children. But um, as a reflection and just highlighting here, this is a recent article um, published in the European Journal of Paediatrics. So um, very small numbers of children having persistent symptoms after COVID, less than 1%. Um, the next click will just highlight some of the things in that table. Most common being fatigue, um, loss of smell and taste, which I think is something that we've seen less with Omicron than with previous um, COVID infections, dizziness, muscle weakness, chest pain and respiratory problems. Um, and the most important thing to note there is that they resolve within a few months. And that certainly reflects what we've um, seen locally with the um, children coming through the COVID clinic at RCH, talking to colleagues who are running that clinic, and that's combined with general paediatrics and some of the clinicians who run the chronic fatigue syndrome where they've taken that approach of a chronic fatigue type approach. Um, but I've, cert I've certainly been aware, and you're probably seeing it in your practices, of, of a range of symptoms um, and knowing whether they're attributable to a post-COVID condition or long COVID or, or something separate. And I think um, um, it is uh, worth thinking about. So there's, I've seen children presenting with um, chest pain and headaches, um, which certainly are potentially attributable to a post-viral syndrome um, and supportive care is, is the mainstay of approach once you've ruled out any significant underlying inflammatory process. 
Um, but also there's there's case reports um, and anecdotes of people presenting with abdominal pain or headaches attributed to post-COVID syndrome, but then end up being uh, appendicitis or uh, space occupying lesion or something else. So as always, just keeping our minds open to the possibilities and not putting it all down to a recent COVID infection. Um, and then moving through to a little bit about multi-system inflammatory syndromes following COVID, which um, I think we mentioned last week has a couple of different names depending on uh, geography, but um, paediatric inflammatory multi-system syndrome temporally associated with SARS-CoV-2, PIMS-TS, um, just rolls off the tongue nicely, but is a good description of what we're seeing. Um, also known as multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children or Miss C. Um, and, you know, to be a child, we're presenting with persistent fever, inflammation, evidence of single or multi-organ dysfunction, um, exclusion of other microbial cause, which is sometimes easier said than done, and two to six weeks is after COVID infection, which is when we're seeing it. So the COVID infection, um, as we, I think, mentioned last week, again, can be asymptomatic, particularly in, in some children. So there's not always a known prior COVID infection, but the serology can help us um, can help us determine that that has previously taken place. Clicking through, um, this is a case definition that's included in um, some of the RCH clinical guidance. Um, and just to show it, I mean, this, this was put together for research purposes, I think, but it helps on the clinical practice, but um, fever, three or more days. So it's a little bit shorter for consideration than, than the Kawasaki um, diagnostic criteria. And I focused on the clinical presentation here because I think that, that this is really just something for you to have in your mind if you're seeing children present with fever that aren't fitting the pattern of another infection and they seem quite inflamed really to initiate a referral either to your friendly local paediatrician or emergency department if you're concerned about how they look. Um, so skin and mucous membrane changes, um, some shock, but we've certainly seen a number of presentations without shock, so quite a wide variety of severity, um, cardiac dysfunction, um, coagulopathy on, um, on blood tests or, or bleeding presentations, um, and GI presentations, again, coming in there. And that's probably the bit to think about if you're seeing people in the community. So I've seen, certainly seen people present with fever, rash and diarrhoea as their main presentations and, and turned out to have um, significant PIMS-TS and inflammation going through. One case I um, was involved in the care of recently was a, was a boy who had had his vaccine um, against COVID three days prior to the onset of his symptoms and he hadn't had a symptomatic COVID infection. So there was um, really understandable concern from the family that the, that his COVID vaccine had precipitated his symptoms. He ended up um, with a significant GI bleed from his um, inflammatory syndrome and um, eye, uveitis, eye inflammation um, and good going systemic inflammation. 
um, requiring escalation of care through a number of different anti-inflammatory agents. Um, but his serology demonstrated that he had had a prior COVID infection, um, not not um, not thought to be associated with the immunisation, but just with the um, the overlap of all of the acute COVID infections and particularly the 5 to 11 vaccine rollout, there's going to be some temporal overlap in presentations. Um, again, just to demonstrate, this is from another recently published article in the Paediatric Infectious Diseases Journal, but um, without getting too weighed down in the data, it's really just to demonstrate there's a lot of overlap between the inflammatory syndromes post-COVID. COVID itself, acute severe COVID with inflammation, um, um, Kawasaki disease and toxic shock. Um, but, um, it, you know, some differences in the, in, the, um, in the outcome, so particularly the coronary involvement, um, most in Kawasaki, we're not seeing quite as much with COVID and post-COVID. Um, as with Kawasaki, but um, really, really significant overlap in some of those symptoms, um, just to make it more fun to try and tease out the difference. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. We'll leave it this morning with the PHN update. Linda, over to you. Thank you. A really, really super quick update from me today. Um, yeah, I've just got the 5 to 11 booster rates there. So you can see across the sub-regions, the numbers are looking pretty good. And in comparison to the national average, we're definitely, yeah, looking good there. So I won't go through those, but we'll just flick to the next slide. Thanks, Gemma. Booster rates similar, also sitting just slightly above the national average too. So again, lots of work there. It was interesting. We had a query from a practice the other day thinking that because their bookings were dropping off, we must be at about the 80% mark for boosters. And that was a bit of a shock for them to, to know that they were still sitting at, at you know, around the 50s. Um, thanks, Gemma. Last slide. Um, we continue to follow up with the, um, the private aged care facilities in our region, um, offering um, options for continuing boosters or third doses now. Um, the Commonwealth have an offer of doing return visits with Aspen if 10% or 10 or more residents require vaccination. Um, we also have options with either general practice or the public health units are also available to support that work. So we're just keeping tabs with, with those rates. And finally, we'll have some information out to general practice early next week, but the Commonwealth have advised that there will be some changes in how uh, PPE is ordered and the bundles that we, that living with COVID bundles and how they're their access. So there is some, some changes happening. I'll go through them in more detail next week, but um, you'll, you'll receive an email to your practices on Monday. I think that's the plan. Um, that's it. Thanks, Bianca. Thanks so much. And um, yeah, thanks to Kate and Jane. Thanks um, to Kerry and Lee, um, as in everyone who sent through uh, questions, cases, keep them coming. As I said, um, you send me cases, I'm going to clear out the schedule and we can really get right deep into ECHO and spend a good half an hour nutting out clinical cases. That's what ECHO is all about. Um, so yeah, it's grounded up. So thank you to those who sent cases. Keep doing it. Um, it's really useful. Now, anything that even talks to how do I 
world of serology, I think right now is really, really um, fantastic. And and thanks, Kerry. It sounds like you've, um, yeah, th- this young person's on the mend. And um, But I can really think that's tricky timing, isn't it, with Head of the River and some of these events for these young people. They've missed out on so much. We're keen to get them back. But what do we um, do? So to keep me set, sending me those conundrums next week, our, and oral antivirals with um, Dr. Rachel Cohen. Um, and also we'll be hearing about how we can access some of these uh, oral antivirals going forward through Ballarat and um, Barwon. So we'll see you then. Okay, bye everyone. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack. That includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.